please read along with me from the book of Exodus. He summoned Moses and Aaron during the night and said, Get up, leave my people, both you and the Israelites, and go worship Yahweh as you have asked. Take even your flocks and your herds as you asked, and leave, and also bless me. The time that the Israelites lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that same day, all the Lord's divisions went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of vigil in honour of the Lord, because he would bring them out of the land of Egypt. This same night is in honour of the Lord, a night vigil for all the Israelites throughout their generations. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about the people and said, What have we done? We have released Israel from serving us. So he got his chariot ready and took his troops with him. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may come back on the Egyptians, on their chariots and horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak the sea returned to its normal depth. While the Egyptians were trying to escape from it, the Lord threw them into the sea. The waters came back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had gone after them into the sea. None of them survived. Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord, they said, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. He has thrown the horse and its rider into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exhort him. Then God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Do not make an idol for yourself. Oh, it's, sorry, do not have other gods besides me. Do not make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above or on the earth below or in the waters under the earth. You must now bow down to them or you must not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God punishing the children for the father's sin to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. Do not misuse the name of the Lord your God, because the Lord will not leave anyone unpunished who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You are to labour six days and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You must not do any work, you, your son or daughter, your male or female slave, your livestock or the foreigner who is within your gates. For the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and everything in them in six days. Then he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and declared it holy. Honour your father and your mother, 
so that you may have a long life in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony against your neighbour. Do not cover your covet your neighbour's house. Do not covet your neighbour's wife, his male or female slave, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbour. Well, thanks, Jenny. Um, keep that open, that outline open in front of you. Um, just to explain its mysteries today, uh, in our series on Exodus, we've, we're doing big blocks of the story of Exodus, but the verses that are printed here are like summary verses, and there's plenty of uh, text between them. Today we're looking at uh, chapters 12 through to 20, um, and these are, are sort of key verses, and I'll be sort of filling in the story, but if you wanted to go away and read the continuous story, hopefully that'll actually make it a lot better. For, um, uh, and in between, the verses or around the other way, I've put the outline of my uh, sermon today, <laughs> um, if that's some, so that some might be some help for you to um, follow where I am. So with those, that explanation, with that piece of paper in front of you, let me pray and let's begin. Heavenly Father, help us to see the world through your eyes and help us to feel for the world through your heart. And as we turn to your word today, we pray that you'd be helping us to understand the world in the light of your great events. And we pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, tre walking where angels fear to tread, I thought I'd open by talking about politics this week. Okay. The election that we have just had delivered a remarkable result, and everyone is asking why. Now, although there are many, many political uh, issues of, of concern and importance, people on all sides of the political divide are beginning to realise that, that one significant issue in this election, despite largely being ignored and denied by politicians, press and pollsters, is the issue of freedom. Against the introduction of what are regarded in some quarters as increasingly oppressive laws, widespread and open hate speech about Christianity and the Western civilization it gave us, an unforgiving and judgmental public media, and even more so in the underworld of social media, and with some very prominent cases of freedom to speak being denied, a significant part of the election result may be due to a, to a substantial portion of Australians having had enough, saying we don't want our freedoms taken away or tampered with any further. Please stop it. Well, if that's the case, what a perfect time in Australian history for us to be thinking together on Sunday mornings about the Exodus. The word Exodus means the way out, an exit. And it has always been used as a powerful metaphor for freedom. We've heard of Brexit. Some are now suggesting Quexit. And perhaps if the feds can't get it right, the states might want to disfederate in some kind of Frexit. Who knows? An exit speaks of a dramatic move to find a greater freedom. The book of Exodus speaks of Israel's great exit. It opens in chapters 1 to 12 with their slavery in Egypt. And it closes in chapters 20 to 40 with them finding freedom in the service of their God. And the middle chapters, which is what we're looking at today, 12 to 19, 
deal with the event that brought them from slavery to freedom. The event that's known as the Exodus was one of the greatest displays of God's power in human history when he dramatically took his people out of slavery in Egypt towards their freedom in their own promised land. But as great as that was, there was still more to come from God. For the exodus from Egypt was a foreshadowing of the greatest exodus this world has ever seen in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In that Mount of Transfiguration in Luke chapter 9 and verse 31, when the disciples saw Jesus speaking with Elijah and Moses, Luke tells us the topic of their conversation. He spoke of his departure. And in the original language, he spoke of his exodus that he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem through his death and resurrection. The exodus of Jesus Christ takes us out of slavery to sin, death, judgment and forces much stronger than ourselves and set on our ruin and destruction and brings us into a freedom which Jesus himself calls perfect freedom. Now, in this present time in Australian history, when the issues of freedom are being attacked and defended, it is a great time for us to be talking about that perfect freedom in Christ, God's way out. So let's have a look at this this, um, portion of Exodus this morning. The Exodus is all about experiencing God's grace. The story so far, we've had the captivity and the call, Israel in slavery, under Pharaoh's oppressive regime, cry out to God for deliverance and he hears them. And then we had the call and the contest. God carefully prepared Moses to be the deliverer of Israel from Egypt. He sent him to Pharaoh with those famous words, let my people go. But Pharaoh wasn't too keen on that. And there was a contest between Pharaoh and his gods and the true and living God, of Israel through a series of plagues sent on the land. These plagues, despite Pharaoh's resistance, as is usual with oppressive rulers, he didn't care of the consequences. And in chapter 10, verse 7, we find his own people coming to him, his counsellors, and saying to Pharaoh, look, can't you see that Egypt is in ruins because of his stubbornness? And then finally, we got to this point at the end of last week, and it's here again on uh, the outline for today, in Exodus chapter 12, verse 31. Pharaoh, having been brought to his knees, summoned Moses and Aaron during the night and said, Get up and leave my people, both you and the Israelites, and go worship Yahweh as you have asked. Take even your flocks and your herds as asked and leave, and also bless me. Now, by then, the people of Egypt had had enough. As with all tyrannical governments, the people suffer more. And they could see that Pharaoh's stubbornness had ruined them. And so in the the, the the section just after this verse, they wanted Israel to go and they helped them to go by providing provisions and even jewellery and wealth to help them on their journey. And so the book of Exodus says in 12, verse 33 to 36, the Israelites left plundering the Egyptians, taking what was rightly the Egyptians with them as gift as they wandered 
heading for God's freedom. And then we read in 1240 that the time the Israelites lived in Egypt was 430 years. That's a very long time, longer than the uh, white Australia has been in existence, of course. They were in slavery 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that same day, all the Lord's divisions went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of vigil in honour of the Lord, because he would bring them out of the land of Egypt. That same night in, is in honour of the Lord and a night vigil for all the Israelites throughout their generations. What's going on here is Exodus 12 is saying that every year from that moment on, the Jewish people would celebrate together that night of Passover as they remembered the Exodus, because this was not their own doing. For 430 years, they had plenty of time to talk about how to deliver themselves, and they weren't able to. But they'd cried out to their Lord, to the Lord, in their years of slavery, and he had heard them, and eventually he had decided to act on their behalf, and he did on this particular night. And in a totally surprising way, this was his exit, and God's exit was the start of Israel's freedom. However, oppressive regimes don't want their slaves to find freedom, and so Pharaoh has a change of mind. We get to chapter 14, verse 5. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about the people and said, what have we done? We have released Israel from serving us. So he got his chariot ready and took his troops with him. And there's a very famous story in the Bible. We know what happens next. Israel, the refugees fleeing an oppressive regime in Egypt, find themselves caught between the soldiers of their oppressor and the impassable Red Sea in front of them. They can do nothing about it themselves. But this is God's exit. The sea opened up before them with a strong wind and they passed through the sea. The soldiers behind them start pouring into the same uh, channel. And then we read in 1426, then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may come back on the Egyptians, on their chariots and horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the and at daybreak the sea returned to its normal depth. While the Egyptians were trying to escape from it, the Lord threw them into the sea. The waters came back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had gone after them into the sea. None of them survived. In order to, to find freedom, the forces of oppression and chaos must be overthrown. Here we have a powerful foreshadowing of God's greatest victory over the forces of evil in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The terrible enemy of sin, keeping human beings enslaved and trapped to the ruin of their lives in this world, defeated on the cross, along with the horrendous outcome of sin, the judgment of God, defeated by Jesus' blood. And the great enemy of humanity, death, as the wages of sin, totally annihilated when Jesus himself rose from the dead on our behalf. The great enemies that oppress humanity are now drowned and overcome 
by Jesus Christ on our behalf. The victory of his great exodus, the end of our oppression, the beginning of our perfect freedom. Now on the other side of the, on the, other, on the opposite shore of the Red Sea, Israel looked back and they find themselves rejoicing in God's grace. They are singing about God in the past. And the great the song that they sang is in Exodus chapter 15. But it's introduced with verse 15, verse 1. The Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. They said, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. He has thrown the horse and its rider into the sea. They sing about God's grace in the immediate past. Unlike the idols of Egypt, the true and living God intervenes in history and changes the world. God's grace is displayed for all time in the Exodus event, just like God's grace is displayed for all time supremely in the cross of Jesus Christ and when Jesus Christ rose from the dead. The past for forever now speaks of God's great victory of his grace. But the Israelites are also singing about God's grace in the present. Because of God's past actions, Israel knows his present presence in their lives. So verse 2, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. God's grace displayed in the Exodus shows him to be on Israel's side in the present. They were rescued to be his people. His commitment to them won't ever change, no matter what comes along. And that's worth singing about. And God's grace displayed in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ shows that God is on our side, the world's side. And that will never change, his commitment to his world. We were rescued to be his people, and that won't change. And we ought to be singing of his grace in the past and singing of his grace in the present. But it's so easy to forget God's grace. Very soon after the Exodus, when life got tough in the wilderness as they were wandering around, Israel started to grumble against Moses as if he had done a bad thing for them rather than a good thing for them. They complained when they were thirsty at one point in chapter 17 uh, and verse 3. Why did you bring us out of Egypt where things were so good in order to die thirsty in the desert? They forgot the oppression. They forgot 430 years of slavery. They forgot their cry of deliverance. And they reimagined their situation so that it didn't seem that bad faced with the thirst in the desert. They created and believed a lie about their past. God displayed his grace in the Exodus. He knew that they needed rescuing and so he rescued them. Egypt's slavery was real and it was bad for them and he took them out to freedom just like our own slavery to sin, living under God's judgment, living under the shadow of death and the constant presence of the devil out to get us. Jesus, the, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, had to die 
to rescue us from all that. I wonder whether we think he's stupid. If Jesus had to die to rescue us to display God's grace, then how bad was life before we knew Christ? We must never forget God's grace. We must never create the illusion and the lie and believe that life without Christ is better than life with Christ. God's grace has been displayed. Instead of forgetting God's grace, we now have the freedom and privilege to live in God's grace. Now, this jumps us along all the way to chapter 20, passing over a lot of good stuff. Please read it. Um, and, once, and when we get to chapter 20, God delivers what is known in, in the, in the uh, original as 10 words, or what has become known throughout uh, our history, the 10 commandments. And that's what we have in, in, the, in chapter 20 and the rest of our reading here. Notice that, uh, what does it look like to live in God's grace? Here we see the shape of God's grace being opened out before us. At Mount Sinai, before explaining the shape of life, living in God's grace, once again, God reminded the people of Israel of where they've come from. He reminded them of his grace in the past, displayed in the Exodus. Exodus 20, verse 1 and 2. Then God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. He then gave them the boundaries of grace and love in the Ten Words or the Ten Commandments or perhaps even the Ten Promises. God acted in history to show them that he was their God. And because he was their God, then he still is their God. No matter how life might change for the better or for the worse as the years go on. Israel needs to remember that he is their God and he's the God of grace. And so do we. And in the ten words that describe the life of living in God's grace, the first four of those words, of those commandments, call on Israel to remember the one true God who acted to be their God. Do not have other gods beside me. Do not make an idol for yourself. Do not misuse the name of the Lord your God. These are a reminder that there is only one God. And he is the one, the true and living God, who's acted in human history on behalf of his people, the God of grace. These commandments, these first three, were a reminder to Israel to remember him, to remember his name, and to remember that his name defines who they were, just like the name of Christ defines who the Christian is, as we say, I am a Christian. And then the fourth was the Sabbath commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Every week they were to have this day off, which I don't suspect they had when they were building the pyramids of Egypt. Every week they had this day off to remember their God and what he'd done for them. There in the midst of their week, God had given them a day of freedom to be with him. It's an invitation to enter God's safe place once a week. And it also looked ahead to the greater freedom in Christ because Jesus Christ called himself on one occasion the Lord of the Sabbath who brought more than just a weekly day of rest 
but he brought the rest of the kingdom of God in eternity, a place of safety in his arms now and a place of safety for eternity in the life to come. Freedom to live forever becomes translated into freedom to live in this present world in a totally new way, at rest with God, safe and secure, no matter what. And then we see the, the last six words, the freedom of God's grace. Then these last six words, these last six commandments, they deal with human life. These are all very brief. Some of them, you know, in the original, just two words, just, just the word no and then murder, no murder, no theft, no adultery. Just very, very brief. Each one could be explained more at length and, they, and deserve to be explained at greater length than I can do today. Very, very brief. But here in these six words, these six instructions, we need to realise they're not oppressive, but they're liberating. They give us the boundaries of human behaviour that show us where true freedom is to be found. Outside these boundaries, life will be ruined, like Egypt. Inside these boundaries, life will be rich and full and free. These boundaries describe the life of grace expressed in love to God and, and love towards our fellow human beings. These commandments are what have shaped, have shaped Western civilization. Honour your father and mother, the basis, uh, telling us that the basis of society is the biological family. Do not murder, telling us that life is to be respected and preserved. Do not commit adultery, governs all sexual behaviour by placing sex in its proper context of marriage. Do not steal the respect of ownership of property, uh, that we need to respect the ownership of the other people's property. Do not give false testimony against your neighbour, the basis for truth-telling in personal dealings and public dealings. Do not covet your neighbour's house and that long list of anything that he had. That is, appreciating that everything we have is the gift of God to us, enjoying what he's given us, but also rejoicing in what, what he's given others, which may well be different to what he's given us. These six instructions are describing freedom, not slavery. They have been the basis of our society. They have shaped countless lives in doing good. And when deepened and expanded and strengthened by the Lord Jesus Christ, they invite us to truly live, to do away with the slavery of sin and to enter God's perfect freedom. Here we see a God, God's gracious invitation to serve him in perfect freedom. And to conclude where I began, governments like Pharaoh come and go, but the living God abides forever. And only God's exit brings us true freedom. Only Christ brings people perfect freedom, the freedom of God's grace in the past and in the present. Human political systems often oppress, yes, even democracies. Sometimes they surprise us by allowing freedom. But we must not put our trust in princes. As Australians chafe to find freedom, 
or strive to resist it. We must continue to point them to Christ, the world's greatest exodus, God's way out. Let's continue to do that.